Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now we come to part two in our current Open House series with author John Mulder on finding God, a treasury of conversion stories, 60 rich deep and diverse stories of people coming to Christian faith. Last week we covered John Wesley, Therese of Lisieux, Sun Chu Kill and Martin Luther King Jr. Well worth catching on the podcast page of our Open House Community website. Tonight, another four diverse and powerful stories of conversion stretching back nearly 2,000 years. John Mulder, welcome back to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be back. John, before we explore our four people tonight, I know you have quite a story in your own conversion, I'd love you to take us through that to begin with tonight. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to ask. I was born, like so many of the people in this book, within the framework of the church. It was a Presbyterian church. I could sometimes say I was predestined to be a Presbyterian. I was raised in the church. When it came time for me to be ordained as a minister, I was ordained in the Presbyterian Church. William James talks about two kinds of people, the once-born and the twice-born, and the once-born go from strength to strength, as the Bible says. They have no great divides in their life when they feel alienated from God and then come to an experience of God's love in Jesus Christ. And I really thought I was a once-born person. I had been nurtured in the church. I became a minister. I became a professor of church history, a president of a seminary, and I just went on and on and on. And I never felt any kind of deep break in my life. But on September 11, 2002, one year after the World Trade Centers came down, I crashed. I was uh, mentally, uh, spiritually, physically, and morally broken. It took me a great deal of time to come to terms with the shattering of my life. Uh, I had done things that I was ashamed of. Alcohol had really eroded my moral code and my moral core, and I felt deeply guilty about what I had done. I also eventually realized that I was suffering from bipolar disease and that that had uh, contributed to my extraordinary activity in life, but also my crash. And eventually I had to leave my home and my family and went to Atlanta for treatment for my alcoholism. And before going to Atlanta and during the first several weeks I was there, I had been praying over and over again, God, forgive me. Please forgive me. And nothing happened. I had absolutely no sense of God's forgiveness of my sins. And eventually, in Atlanta, in treatment, I gave up, and I simply said, Lord, open me up. And I'm not sure exactly why I prayed that prayer, except that I really was at the end of my rope, and I didn't know what else to pray. And one morning, as I was making my breakfast in an apartment that I shared with three other men. I was slathering 
peanut butter on an English muffin uh, is something as common and banal as that. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by a white light, and it was warm and embracing. It wasn't threatening in any way. And I just stood there. Eventually, the light began to subside, and then I heard a voice saying, You are not alone. That became the turning point for me in my treatment, and it's been the most important turning point in my spiritual life. A friend of mine calls it the most important event in my continuing conversion, and I think that's probably pretty accurate. I, like so many of these people, can look back on a decisive event, but there are often many events that mark a person's pilgrimage that bring them back to God or bring them back again to God, and that's exactly what happened to me. I had to be brought back to God again. I had walked into the swamp, and I needed to be pulled out. And that voice that you heard was a very tangible thing. Yes, I clearly heard it, and it clearly went away. I can only say with several people in the book, I wasn't hallucinating, I wasn't on drugs, my system was completely empty of alcohol, so I wasn't on any kind of high, and uh, yet the experience was very definite and decisive. Like so many in your book. So to our four conversion stories for tonight, John, let's start with a man who was born in the year 280 AD, the Emperor Constantine. Perhaps first, set us a bit of an historical context for his life and his coming to faith. Well, Constantine was born at a time when the Christian movement or the Christian church was in clearly its infancy. This is the late 3rd century, early 4th century, planted in various places throughout the Mediterranean and elsewhere in northern Africa and in Asia. But it was still just a very, very small movement at the margins of the Roman Empire and cultures in Asia and North Africa. It happened in 312, and it came before a battle that Constantine was, uh, he was leading an army of Romans. It happened on a bridge. According to at least the majority opinion, he had a vision, and it was the vision of the cross, and underneath was, in Latin, the words, in this sign, conquer. And with that vision, Constantine went into battle, was successful and victorious, and as a result of that vision, he named Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. This is probably the most important conversion in Western Christianity for the first 1,500 years of the Church's history because Constantine's edict that Christianity should become the religion of the realm then created the soil and the foundation for spreading Christianity throughout Western Europe and the Mediterranean. 
we would be an entirely different kind of Christianity, I think, if Constantine had not been converted on that bridge. Some would say we might be a better kind of Christianity today because the Church became too dependent upon the support of the state and assumed that its interests and the interests of political power belong together when they ought to be in tension or in opposition to each other. But Constantine really laid the foundation for the next centuries of Christianity, and I think we're still dealing with the implications of what it means to have been the religion of the realm, the religion of the state, in so many areas of the world, uh, including areas like the United States that technically has a separation between the church and state, or in your own country, Australia. The whole notion that somehow Christianity and political power should be related and recognize one another is an idea that still has not died, and it's Constantine that put it into our system. So let's fast forward to 1623. Blaise Pascal is born, who goes on to be known as a genius. Take us through that story, John. Well, he lived a very short time, uh, 39 years, and in that time he became a philosopher, a physicist, a mathematician, a theologian, and a writer of great literature. But the reason he's in the book is because of really two things. One is the famous wager that he left behind, and that is that somebody who's doubting ought to believe in God, because if you believed in God and you were wrong, then you wouldn't pay any consequences. But if you didn't believe in God and you were wrong, then you might be damned. And so the best alternative for people in life is simply to believe. It's a a good wager. You can bet your life on believing in God— and you can't come off badly. Pascal's wager has always been one way of understanding how people confront the intellectual choice of believing in God or not believing in God. But the primary reason he's in this book is because of his very, very powerful experience. Uh, One might even call it a kind of white light experience like mine. He writes in his memorial about his blazing awareness of God's presence. He says, fire the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, and then certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. It's all there the stages of conversion, the stages of awareness, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, a kind of final serenity in the midst of all of his endless intellectual speculation about God. He finally comes to the point where God is real, and it comes in this apprehension of fire in his mind. And your account of his life and his story emphasizes the issue that emerges in his life of using illness to a good end. Yes, exactly. So many of these stories 
involve physical illness in one way or another. And I don't mean to overemphasize this or psychologize it in any way, but there is a sense that in illness we confront our own mortality and our own limitations. And it's only in discovering limitations that one can find help from someone who knows no limitation, who is able to bring us to an awareness of our creatureliness and who then loves us in our creatureliness. Probably the biggest obstacle, I would say, to people encountering God is an awareness of their own self-sufficiency. I can make it, which is the dominant ideology of most of the Western and industrialized world. I can do it. I can make it. I can do it on my own. In my experience, the breakthrough that came in my life really was that I had to admit that I needed help. I couldn't make it on my own. After all, I was a minister. I provided help to other people. I didn't need help myself. Pascal's life and illness and dying at such an early age, he, he records his own weakness and yet his own joy in finding God and God's strength in the midst of his weakness. It's a vitally important lesson in the conversion stories of millions of people, really. So now to the early 1900s, John. Most influential journalist, commentator, and a rather curious convert to Christian faith, Malcolm Muggeridge. Yes. (laughs) Muggeridge was uh, sui generis. There was nobody quite like him uh, during his lifetime or even after. And... He was not raised as a Christian. He was raised uh, really outside the Christian church. And he became a purveyor of words. That was his lifetime in all kinds of different ways, ranging from articles and books to television documentaries, including one on Mother Teresa that changed him pretty dramatically. He covered the 20th century during its most tumultuous periods. World War I, the rise of communism, the rise of Nazism and fascism, World War II, the Cold War, Vietnam, and he finally died in 1990. Through it all, he became thoroughly disillusioned with modern civilization. He witnessed the flowering of communism, particularly in Russia, and he found it absolutely barren. He found it incapable of providing the kind of meaning and purpose that should exist in human life. And the second thing he became equally disillusioned by is the notion of progress and prosperity of the Western capitalized world. So that a On the one hand, he's rejecting communism and socialism as being intellectually and spiritually barren, but he's also turning that same condemnation upon the West and its emphasis upon consumption and capitalism and 
values of money and material prosperity. And in the midst of those two major rejections, he comes to an understanding of God. And it's not one that comes quickly or easily, but comes gradually. And he becomes a kind of quixotic apologist for Christianity in a century that witnesses this huge tension between communism and the state on the one hand and consumerism and capitalism on the other. And right through the middle of it, with slings and arrows at both sides, Muggeridge attempts to forge a Christian vision of what life can be like that rejects these two major alternatives posed by the 20th century. It's an enormously important figure for our modern world. Finally, John, a contemporary of Malcolm Muggeridge, Claire Booth Luce, who appears in your book of conversion stories. Tell us why you put her in. Claire Booth Luce, a generation ago, would have been an absolutely logical person to belong in this book because she was so famous. She was an author in her own right, writing Broadway plays and books and novels and films. And after World War II, after she married uh, Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine and the head of the Time magazine empire. After she married him, she became a very prominent person speaking on Christianity in the atomic age. She served in Congress here in the United States. So she was a major woman in mid-20th century America. I put her in because she gives voice to a experience of God that comes in her youth, and it's a kind of mystical experience of God in nature. It happens on a beach. She experiences what she calls something, something that made enormous sense, and that really shaped her and changed her. She wrote, Joy abounded in all of me, or rather I abounded in joy. I seemed to have no nature, and yet my whole nature was adrift in this immense joy as a speck of dust is seen to dance in a great golden shaft of sunlight. Uh, Once again, the experience of light and joy that uh, comes in so many of these stories. She really forgets about the experience for a good deal of her life, and then she becomes a Catholic, and all of a sudden that early experience comes washing over her again, and she's able to recall the moment of joy that began her spiritual life. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful recollection. In an important recollection of stories of conversion in Christian faith, Finding God, a Treasury of Conversion Stories by John Mulder. John, thank you so much again for joining us on Open House. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Look forward to chatting next week when we'll explore the lives of St. Augustine, Richard Baxter, Fanny Crosby and Bono. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.